Open your Bibles to Ruth chapter 1. We will be studying the book of Ruth for the next few weeks, and I'm excited about this book. I pray the Lord will use it to bless our church. For hundreds of years in the late spring, early summer, Jewish families would pilgrim to Jerusalem and to celebrate the festival of Shavuot. Now, you might not have heard of that festival. It's not one that is very prominent. It was one of the three festivals that the Jewish people would go to celebrate every year in Jerusalem. Shavuot means weeks or seven, so it took place seven weeks after Passover. Now, when we think of that festival, we think of probably the name Pentecost, which means the Greek word for 50. But this was a festival of celebration for God's provision of the harvest, And so the Jewish people would come, their families would come to Jerusalem, and they would take their first fruits of their harvest, and they would celebrate that God had provided for them. This was sort of a huge offering, a huge time of worship to bring their offerings before the Lord. And they would go to the temple, and they would literally wave those before the Lord and present those to Him. I think this actually is a good example of... uh, Worship through giving, and not many people know this coming for the first time, but we have boxes in the back, and we worship the Lord through giving. We don't wave our offerings (laughs) before the church, before the Lord in that way, but it is a way to worship God, and we see this here in in the Old Testament, also in the New Testament, that we are to bring the first fruits of our income to the Lord, but so, so this festival they had was about that. It was about praising God for his provision. God had Graciously, graciously provided for them. One of the ways they remembered God's gracious provision was by reading the book of Ruth. The Jewish people would assemble in local assemblies like this. It would look a little different than this, but local assemblies like this. And they would read the entire book of Ruth. And Jewish tradition actually said that this was the time, this was the, the birthday of David as well. So not only did they worship God for the, for the fruit of harvest of the ground, the fruit of, the, of the, the harvest, but also the fruit of the womb. So this was a celebration that went beyond just food, that went also to celebrating that God had preserved his royal line through David, and then one day would provide a Messiah through that. So it's for this reason that Ruth was such a perfect book to read for this festival. It encapsulates both God's provision of harvest and his provision to preserve the kingly line of David. In fact, David was from Bethlehem, which means house of bread. So you can even hear that in this festival, this idea of, of harvest. So reading through the book of Ruth was a perfect way to teach about God's providence to teach about how God provides our daily bread, but also God provides redemption. One day he'll provide it through the Messiah. And for us as New Testament believers, we look back and trust that he has provided it through Jesus Christ. So therefore, Ruth is really about God governing the natural affairs of this world to fulfill his promise 
to bring forth a Messiah who would redeem his people. I could think you could sum up the book of Ruth like that. It's about God governing the natural affairs of this world to fulfill his promise to bring forth a Messiah who would redeem his people. Sometimes people look at the book of Ruth and they see it as a love story. And yes, it's true. There is a woman named Ruth and a man named Boaz and they get together and they get married. And there's a story about a couple who get married. But this is not about a love story. This is not 30 days to find a husband, okay? Maybe you're single in here and you were hoping that this would be the way to get, you know, 10 divine tips on dating or something like that. And so, though it does speak about this covenant love that God has for his people and even that Ruth shows as well, we're going to see most prominently that it's actually speaking about God's providence to provide. And particularly, it's actually in the life of Naomi. Now, that might surprise some of you because you're like, isn't it called the book of Ruth? But actually, Naomi actually is the main character in this story. One thing we'll notice through this book is that there's the the theme of redemption. And what we're going to see at the end of the story that Boaz redeems Ruth. So if you're familiar with the story, you remember that. Boaz redeems Ruth. But here's what's interesting. Here's kind of a little teaser for you to consider. In Ruth 4.14, Naomi celebrates that Ruth's baby actually redeems her. So I'm not going to go through a lot of those things I just talked about, but maybe what you can do is this week, you can go through the book of Ruth, you can read through it. In fact, I'm going to encourage you every, every week that we're teaching on the book of Ruth, just read through the entire book of Ruth, and it'll help you as you come into this time of studying from God's word. The book of Ruth, we are introduced to an Israeli couple, Elimelech and Naomi. They're from the town of Bethlehem. They are of the tribe of Judah. They are Epaphrathites. Does that sound familiar to anyone? Who else was from the town of Bethlehem, Judah, and Epaphrathites? Does anyone else know? Well, David, who is going to be born and come to the world 100 years after the book of Ruth, and then someone else as well. That's right. Jesus, Micah 5.2, prophesies that Jesus would also come through this line. The first name mentioned in Ruth, in Ruth chapter 1, verse 2, you can see the first name mentioned is Elimelech, who's the husband of Naomi. His name means, God is my king. My God is king. So this is, this is important because through Elimelech's family, through his line, will come the royal and messianic line. The royal and messianic, uh, the, the, the royal line and the messiah. But if you notice, we're going to look at this in chapter 1, that there's kind of set up an impossible situation. It doesn't seem like that line can continue. Why? Because Elimelech dies and his sons die. But then in chapter 4, at the end of Ruth, we're going to find that the Lord actually does preserve the royal line in a remarkable and providential way. So this, this story in Ruth, as it goes through this, we're going to see how God works providentially in the world, and in our lives personally. In fact, if you look at the end of Ruth, look at the very end of Ruth, Ruth chapter 4, verse 21. I'm going to kind of give the whole thing away here. At the end of the book, you see the last name of the book in the book, and that is David's name. So this is kind of where we're going to be heading with this. We're going to see how does God provide for, for 
uh, Limelech to have his family name continue. I should say how Naomi to have her line continue. Ruth tells a story of everyday providence. And so that's kind of the theme of this book and what we're going to talk about. So the question is, how do we respond to God's providence? You have kind of the macro level of God's providence where God is working from Genesis to Revelation and throughout time within our world, he has his sovereign plan. But then you kind of have the micro personal level where God is working in each person's life through natural means, through events and through people. God's providentially putting different people and events in your life and he has a reason for that. And so really the question I want to ask here this morning is how should we respond to God's divine providence? We're going to see two ladies in this text, Naomi and Ruth, we're going to see they respond in two different ways. First of all, let's just look at the circumstances of life. Look at the circumstances of life, the difficulties of life. Look with me in in Ruth chapter 1. We're not going to read the entire chapter. We're just going to kind of walk through the chapter and read and explain as we go. Verse 1 says, In the days when the judges ruled, there was a famine in the land, and a man of Bethlehem in Judah went to sojourn in the country of Moab, he and his wife and his two sons. Let's stop right there. Notice in verse 1, we learn of a family who lived in Bethlehem in the time of the judges. In the time of the judges. That was a terrible time. Honestly, it's kind of like saying in the time of 2020, (laughs) but, you know, a thousand times worse. In other words, when they saw that in the time of the judges, they recognized that this was a time when people did what was right in their own eyes. In fact, look back one page at the end of Judges chapter 21, verse 25. Judges 21, 25 describes the time of the judges. In those days, there was no king in Israel. Everyone did what was right in his own eyes. So Israel lived during this time like the people pre-flood. Remember that? They lived and did what was right according to what was right in their own eyes. Remember one time I was a camp counselor and had a group of middle school boys in the cabin and I went away. I think we had a meeting or something. I went away, and I came back and opened the door, and these boys were going crazy. You know, if you can imagine these boys being left alone in the room, there were pillows flying everywhere. Some of the boys were half-clothed. It was one of those situations, right? The authority left the room, and what happened? All these boys did what was right in their own eyes. And that's what happens when we remove authority from our life, particularly the authority of God. That's what these people did. Though God was to be their king, they were to submit to God as their king. They decided to live for themselves and to rule by their own ideas and by their own selfish desires. But what's interesting is the Lord loved them too much to allow them to live according to their sinful passions. So what did the Lord do? Well, we see this cycle over and over in Judges where he comes and he brings judgment upon them. In fact, if you look in Deuteronomy eleven seventeen. I put it up here on the screen. The Lord warned them this. He said that the anger of the Lord will be kindled against you. He will shut up the heavens so that there will be no more rain and the land will yield no fruit and you will perish quickly off the good land that the Lord is giving you. 
So here's a promise from the Lord that if they turn from the Lord, that the Lord will cause a famine to come on their land. And that's actually what we see here in this text of scripture this morning. Here is a family and they're in the midst of famine. This report of famine should have caused this family to consider what God was doing. What we should be reading after verse one is that this family got on their knees before God and they repented of their sin and they asked God to provide for them. But we don't see that. In fact, we see that he decided to, the Elimelech, the father of the family, decided to leave God's promised land for them and go to the country of Moab. And the irony here is that he leaves making a decision to survive right? I mean, do you really blame him? There's famine. There's no food. They're desperate for food. And so they hear of another place that has food, but they leave God's place of blessing. And the irony is here to survive. He left, but in leaving, he then died. In fact, look at verse two. The Bible says, the name of the man was Elimelech, the name of his wife, Naomi, and the names of his two sons were Malon and Chilion, they were Epaphrathites from Bethlehem and Judah, and they went into the country of Moab and remained there. So though they went to sojourn, which seems like it's temporary, right? In verse 2, we realize that they went there and they decided that they were there to stay. But I want you to notice what this author is doing is he's going through Let me go back to this. What he's doing is he's going through different tragedies in their life. First of all, there's a famine. And I want you to imagine that because we live in a a country of plenty, right? I mean, we we can go to the grocery store. We can get whatever we want to get pretty much. Well, maybe not so much anymore, but we can get pretty much anything that will fill our bellies. But here's a family of four. They have two boys, two young men, and they are starving because of a famine. And then we see the tragedy gets even worse because then they go to the land of Moab. And what is the land of Moab? Moab. Well, that was a cursed pagan land. We're not going to look this up, but if you want to, Deuteronomy 23.3, you can see that they were cursed by God. So here was a wicked people. They'd actually enslaved Israel, subjugated Israel for many years. They served the idol Chemosh. This is a, a wicked, wicked religion. It involved immorality. It included child sacrifice. So, I mean, they're going to a a wicked culture. Limelech and Naomi traveled 50 miles with their two sons in a desperate attempt for a better life, but clearly they were spiritually, they were physically going the wrong direction. But notice what happened when they got there. Verse 3 says, but Elimelech, Limelech, the husband of Naomi, died, and she was left with her two sons. So now Naomi is in a foreign land with a foreign tongue, and she doesn't have a husband anymore. And then it gets even worse. Look at verse 4. These sons, these took Moabite wives. So the sons are of age. They get married. Why is is this a problem? Because it was actually prohibited in the law of Moses to marry Moabites, because they were cursed. And then the Bible says that these took Moabite wives, the name of one was Orpah, 
the name of the other Ruth. They lived there about 10 years, and both Malon and Chilion died. So, I mean, notice how things are just progressively getting worse and worse for Naomi, so that the woman, that's Naomi, was left without her two sons and her husbands. So to make matters worse, not only does her husband die, but now her sons die. So now she's left with two widows that she has to care for. And again, she's in a foreign land. But actually, it's even worse than all this because these two wives of her son, sons, they had no offspring. They had no children. Now, for us in our society, we might think, well, what's the big deal about that? What's the problem with that? Well, that was uh, a big problem in their society. It was a stigma. They would have no way to continue the line of Elimelech, so their ancestral line is now dead because he's dead and their sons are dead. And and even if these two widows were to marry Moabites, well, that wouldn't help them out because Naomi would be left by herself and she still wouldn't be able to continue the ancestral line. And and if she went back to Israel with these two ladies, well, they're Moabite women. They're not going to get remarried in Israel, right? So, and, and no, and In Naomi's mind, everything is done. Like, her life is over. I mean, peer into the heart of this woman, Naomi, but also into Ruth. Think about about Ruth and Orpah. I mean, think about these three ladies sitting around a table in their little home. There's no children running around the room. There's no children, no grandchildren. I mean, Naomi's in a foreign land. They got to try to survive without any husbands. I mean, this is about as bad as it can possibly get. And so how do they respond? How do they respond to God's providence in their life? Look at verse 6. Then she, that's Naomi, arose with her daughters to return from the country of Moab. This is actually probably like the first good sign that we see. Naomi realizes that she better go back. And she's going to take her two daughters with her. They're going to return to the land of Israel. If you see that word return there, that the form of that Hebrew word is used 16 times in this chapter. And I, think, I think what the author is trying to do here is send a message that Naomi needed to repent. She needed to return back to the Lord. So this is a good first step for her. Naomi is returning to the land of promise. But as she returns, we're going to see that she continues to have this heart of bitterness in regard to her situation. Though her feet change direction, her heart does not change direction. So next, I want to look at really the the sorrow of responding with bitterness and consider the heart of Naomi. After all this sorrow, Naomi Naomi decided to pack up her belongings, to go back to Israel. And let's look at verse 6 and see why. Why is it that she decided to do that? Verse 6 goes on to say that she arose with her daughters-in-law to return from the country of Moab. So she packs up her stuff. Why? For she had heard in the fields of Moab that the Lord had visited his people and given them food. So, So at some point, she's out in these fields in Moab. She's gleaning from the fields, and she hears a rumor that in Israel there's plenty to eat. And she, therefore, attributes that to the blessing of the Lord upon Israel. So that's a good sign, right? She's seen here that God is providing for his people. And she says that, that God has visited his people and given them food. 
But then something happens. She packs all her stuff up and she takes her two daughters-in-law. I mean, if you ever moved before, you recognize the difficulty it is in moving. She packs all her stuff. She's moving. At some point in that journey, she stops and she decides that she's going to have her two, her two daughters-in-law go back to Moab. Why did she change her mind? What I want us to see here, we're going to skip down to verse 13, because what I want us to see is, is that Naomi t- took some good steps back to the Lord, but because there was this lingering bitterness in her heart about her situation, it actually corrupted her attitude. It corrupted her decisions and her actions. In fact, look down in verse 13. Why did she change her mind eventually and ask her daughters-in-law to stay in Moab? Verse 13 reads this. Look at the middle of verse 13. The scripture says, No, my daughters, this is Naomi responding to her daughters, for it is exceedingly bitter to me for your sake that the hand of the Lord has gone out against me. Verse 13 gives us insight into the root of Naomi's thinking. She believed in the providence of the Lord. So she did believe in God's providence, yet she believed the Lord was against her. She really had a negative view of God's providence, her view that God intended to hurt her. She basically said, things are far more bitter for me than you because the Lord has brought bitterness into my life. In fact, notice in verse 13 there, she describes herself as very bitter. The Hebrew word for this is mara, marar, sorry, marar. In fact, if you look down in verse 20, you can see this same word used in verse 20, marar. The Almighty has dealt very marar, very bitterly with me. In fact, in verse 20, we're going to see this later on, that she actually changes her name to mara, which is the name Bitter, so she actually changes her name to Bitter One. And why would she do that? Why why would she change her name like that? Why does she view life like this? Well, verse 20 gives us that answer. Look at the end of verse 20. She says that the Almighty, that's God, has dealt very marar, very bitterly with me. This word marar is used in the Old Testament to describe the bitterness of bitter wine or bitter tears. Uh, This past week, someone gave our family some seaweed to eat. You ever eaten seaweed? Oh, okay, there we go. And uh, and so they, you know, it was on our kitchen table, and our kids come over, and they're just gobbling this stuff down. They really were enjoying it, and I enjoyed their uh, down-on-the-farm candy, so I figured I would enjoy this too. So I picked one up, put it in my mouth, and it was bitter. I spit it right out. I did not like it. Sorry about for the amen over there. But I did not like it. It was, it was sharp. It was unpalatable. And that's what bitterness is. It's this pungent, sharp taste that you get. And there are events that God puts in our life that sometimes can be bitter, that they can be sharp to the soul. In fact, before we continue on, what I want to do is just look at this word, and I want to look at another word in the New Testament. Would you go to Ephesians chapter 4? Turn with me to Ephesians chapter 4. It's interesting to study what the Bible teaches about bitterness. In Ruth, we observe the, the Hebrew word marar. In the New Testament, the parallel Greek word is pakria. 
Pekria is used in Ephesians chapter 4, verse 31, where he says, let all bitterness. What's interesting is that in the first century, the Jesus and the disciples, they would have used the Hebrew Old Testament. They also would have used a Greek Old Testament. And the Greek Old Testament has as the Greek word for bitter, this word right here, this Greek word, pikara, pikreia, sorry, pikreia. So look at verse 31, Ephesians chapter 4, verse 31. He says, Paul writes to the church, let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you along with all malice. So, so Paul instructs the church here to make sure that we put away these negative responses. And notice the first and really the root of all these responses in verse 31. He says, let all bitterness And then he says, and wrath, and anger, and clamor, and slander. And what what you see here is the sequence of what results from a heart of bitterness. So so the root is bitterness, and it leads to the fruit of of wrath, and anger, and clamor. When when we hear people gossiping, or someone slandering, or someone who's angry, we can can come back, and we can look at at the root of that here in Ephesians chapter 4, verse 31, and it's bitterness. In fact, Turn with me over to Hebrews chapter 12. I want you to see this again. It's a word again used in Hebrews chapter 12, verse 15. The author of Hebrews talks about bitterness in Hebrews 12, 15. He writes, see to it that no one fails to obtain the grace of God. Verse 15, in that no root of Bitterness, so there's that word, springs up and causes trouble, and by it many become defiled. So notice the the Holy Spirit indicates that the root of bitterness within the heart can spring up and cause hurt to many people. Now go back to Ruth, because I want us to consider these two texts as we consider Naomi, and we consider her response to God's providential work in her life. What is bitterness? When you think of the word bitterness, what do you think of? When you think of someone being bitter, what do you think of? Well, bitterness really starts with a heart that considers a person or maybe a situation to be unpleasant, to be maybe sharp to the heart, to the soul. Then it dwells upon that perceived wrong. It meditates upon that, that wrong that that person's done to them or that perceived wrong. Then the heart grows more and more resentful. And so really, bitterness is like this. If you want to write this down, here's my definition of bitterness. Bitterness is a response of resentment about someone or something that you believe has treated you unfairly. Bitterness is a response of resentment about someone or something that you believe has treated you unfairly. And isn't that what we see with Naomi? I mean, She believes that she's been treated unfairly. And we're going to see this as we look at bitterness in her life. When the root of bitterness grows in your soul, it will grow into a spiritual weed that will entangle your life, kill your joy, and hurt people around you. Let's look down in verse 6, and let's look at a couple characteristics of bitterness in the life of Naomi. In verse 6, we're going to observe that Naomi confesses God's goodness But notice she doesn't apply that to herself. And so the first really characteristic is this. Bitterness allows you to know the truth. It allows you to know the truth about God, but prevents you from submitting to that truth. 
Verse 6 says, Then she arose with her daughters-in-law to return from the country of Moab. So she's going a good direction here, for she had heard in the fields of Moab that the Lord had visited his people and given them food. So she set out from the place where she was with her two daughters-in-law. Then they went on the way to return to the land of Judah. So they're, they're already down the road quite a bit here. Verse 8, but Naomi said to her her two daughters-in-law, she stopped at some point and said, go, return each of you to her mother's house. May the Lord deal kindly with you as you have dealt with the dead and with me. The Lord grant that you may find rest, each of you, in the house of her husband. So go back, get remarried in Moab. Then she kissed them and lifted up their voices and wept. I want you to notice a couple things about what she believed. First of all, she believed in Yahweh. She didn't reject the Lord here, did she? She still believed in the Lord. She believed that the Lord had visited his people. She believed that God is able and to be gracious and merciful. In fact, if you look down in verse 8, she asks that the Lord would be gracious to Naomi and Orpah. She agrees with the truth about God but she doesn't submit to that truth in her own life. Think about that. She confesses the Lord's mercy, but do you see her in the situation saying that, that God has visited me? God's visited his people, but she doesn't say here that God's visited her. Yes, God can be loving, but she doesn't apply that love to herself. And bitterness, I think, in her heart prevented her from applying God's truth to her life. She recognized the truth about God, but she didn't apply that to her own situation. I think this teaches us that, that we, can, we can go to church, we can teach a Sunday school class, we can know a lot about God, yet we can have bitterness in our heart. Mental assent to truth does not equal true submission to truth. Mental assent to truth does not equal true submission to truth. And second, notice that bitterness causes you to have a temporal view of life. Notice that Naomi placed the highest value for her daughters-in-law on marriage, really a temporal value. Look at verse 10. And he said, and they said to her, so they respond back to Naomi, no, we will return with you to your people. But Naomi said, turn back, my daughters. Why will you go with me? Have I yet sons in my womb that they may become your husbands? Like, am I going to be able to have a, a son and have him grow up and be able to become your husband? Turn back, my daughters. Go your way, for I am too old to have a husband. Like, I, I, that's done for me. I'm not going to be able to get married anymore. If I should say I have hope, even if I should have a husband this night and should bear sons, would you therefore wait till they were grown? Would you therefore refrain from marrying? No, my daughters, for it is exceedingly bitter to me for your sake that the hand of the Lord has gone out against me. So Naomi's bitterness here caused her to view life, I think, really from a worldly perspective. I mean, what was her highest value for her daughters and even for herself? It was about getting married. And is it bad to get married? No. In fact, actually, marriage is something that God has ordained, right? Marriage is of God. So that's a good blessing from God. But she viewed that as the highest value of life. Since she had lost all, she believed her life was over because she couldn't have that anymore. 
And so what was her counsel to her daughters-in-law? Now think about that. What was her counsel to her daughters-in-law? Go back to the cursed people, get married to one of the cursed men, go back to your god, Chamash, have kids. Think about the ramifications of that. Yes, her daughters-in-law might get that one thing. They might get married. They might be able to have that, that goal, you might say, again in life. But at what expense? At what cost? They would be marrying Moabites. Their kids would grow up. They would worship a demonic idol. Not to speak of the fact that is there any joy in any of that? I mean, is this going to be actually a blessing for them to get married to these men in Moab? No. And, and even beyond that, what about the next life? What about the worship of Yahweh? What about following him? And so I think that here, this bitterness caused her to have a temporal view of life. For her, it was like, okay, as long as you guys get married, that's all that really matters. I think about a young lady that I once knew, and she was having a very difficult time in her home. And her parents, as far as we could tell, were godly parents. But this young lady was so intent of getting away from her parents. She was bitter about a, a lot of things in her life, particularly just the rules that she felt like her parents had put upon her. And so she wanted to escape all that. And in bitterness, she escaped and ran away with a boy. How do you think that turned out for her? But you know what's sad about that? Is that bitterness like that can cause you to have a temporal view of life. And it can restrict your view of the eternal life. God's eternal perspective. And then third, bitterness hurts people. Look at verse 14. Then they lifted up their voices and wept again. And Orpah kissed her mother-in-law, but Ruth clung to her. And she said, see, your sister-in-law has gone back to her people and her gods. Return after your sister-in-law. Your sister-in-law has gone back. Ruth, go, go back to your gods, go back to Shamash. I mean, notice that Orpah's return to the pagan gods did not phase Naomi. It wasn't like she was like, oh, it's so sad, but I notice that she's even trying to get Ruth to do that. I mean, do you think that Orpah had a good life after this? We don't know what happened to Orpah after this, but do you think she had a good life after that? Definitely not one that honored the Lord. So you can see that she's not considering the future of these ladies in that way, really what would be best for them according to Yahweh. Look at verse 16. Orpah goes back to her gods. So why not you, Ruth? Verse 16. But Ruth said, do not urge me to leave you or to return from following you. For where you go, I will go. Where you lodge, I will lodge. Your people shall be my, my people and your God, my God. Where you die, I will die. There will I be buried. So I'm going to go with you even to the grave. May the Lord do so to me and more also if anything but death parts from, from you. Parts me from you. So this is Ruth's here, confession of her faith in the Lord. And this confession, she completely and permanently rejects the gods of Moab, which I mean, if you think about that, Naomi should be praising God for this, right? Praise God, she turned to the true Yahweh, one true God. But how does she respond? 
How does Naomi respond? Look at verse 18. Notice how Naomi responds to, to Ruth's confession. Verse 18, and when Naomi saw that she was determined to go with her, how did she respond? She encouraged her. Is that what it says? She blessed her. She said no more. After hearing Ruth's confession of faith to the Lord, Naomi went silent. Now, why did Naomi go silent? The truth is we don't know. The scripture doesn't tell us why. We can't be certain that her intent was to hurt Ruth. But clearly she didn't encourage Ruth. Like she didn't affirm her decision. The, the scriptures make a point to note that she was silent for a reason. She says nothing after Naomi's confession. I mean, we read this confession, and next week we're going to kind of study this a little bit more. But we read this confession, and it, it melts the hearts of those who follow the Lord, right? But what did it do to Naomi's heart? She says nothing after this. And whether it was intended or not to hurt her, it definitely, I imagine, definitely did hurt her. Many times people use silence as a cure to their bitterness. Bitter people many times go to silence to say this is the way to cure their pain. Maybe they say things like this. Well, maybe we just give it some time. We, just won't, we won't deal with it right now. We'll see what maybe time can heal these wounds. Sometimes people say things like this. We will just take a break from each other for a while. So we'll just be silent in this relationship. Or sometimes people hurt people with their silence by saying, well, that, that's their problem. You know, if they want to solve that problem, then they can come to me and talk to me about it. And so they kind of separate themselves with silence of that person. Silence is a tool that's often used by bitter people to deal with their pain. Just think about that. Whether it's intended or not, sometimes silence is used to cause pain to other people and causes pain to other people. There are people who will hold on to something that they perceive that's wrong, it's been wrong to them or wrong to someone else in their life. They hold on to that pain for years and they don't deal with it. And they're silent about it. Sometimes years later, they can go by and, and they can, they'll bring that back up. And they'll say something like, oh, well, I haven't said this for a couple years, but three years ago, this person did this. Sometimes people can have such a detailed memory of something that happened years ago, and they keep silent for many years, but man, they can bring it up and they can go through the details because they've held on to those things. And friends, can I tell you, when we do that, that's called bitterness. I think we need to ask ourselves, we need to ask ourselves if we are using bitterness or if we are using silence as a way to hurt people that we're bitter against. Sometimes there are people in our life that we can think about and we, we think about the wrongs they've done to us over and over and we have a difficult time even talking to them. You know, maybe, maybe it's even someone that, has, that comes to church here, right? And, and they're on one side of the auditorium and you're on the other side and you do not want to talk to them. I knew of a situation where there was a married couple and they had a dispute 
And the dispute grew and grew to the point when we found out about it as pastors that they had actually divided the house in two and she had her side and he had his side and they never talked to each other. I think about the teenager who is upset at his parents or her parents and they go to their room and they get on their phone and they try to escape. They use silence to try to escape from the problem and to hurt the other person. And the point is that bitterness hurts people. Whether you do it with harsh words, whether you do it with silence, it hurts people. Bitterness kills. It kills relationships. But friends, can I tell you, it also kills your own soul. You probably heard the saying, bitterness is like drinking poison and expecting the other person to die. Right? It doesn't make any sense. It actually hurts you more than anyone else. And then last, notice this, bitterness deceives. Bitterness deceives you. Look at verse 19. So the two of them went on until they came to Bethlehem. And when they came to Bethlehem, the whole town was stirred up because of them. And the women said, is this Naomi? So, so notice they walk into town and they're going, Naomi, is this her? Now notice the reaction they have. Is it positive or negative? What do you think? If you look at that text, what is it? Is it positive or negative? Well, it's hard to tell. It's hard. I don't think we actually can know just from the text of Scripture there. But they clearly observed something was wrong with Naomi. I mean, obviously, she's not with her husband, but it was more than that. There was something about her that was different. Naomi's name means pleasant, but clearly she was not pleasant anymore. In fact, look at verse 20. So she said to them, when they noticed this, she said to them, do not call me Naomi. Don't call me pleasant anymore. Call me Mara. Call me bitter, for the Almighty has dealt very bitterly with me. What's the point here of changing her name? She changes her name to bitter one. What's the point? Well, I think genuinely she felt like life was bitter. But you can see at the end of verse 20 where she actually says, Call me bitter because God has made me bitter. He's dealt very bitterly with me. I mean, changing her name was like wearing a name tag around town that identified her as one who's been wronged, wronged by God. And I really think what you see here is is she's expressing this self-pity, this self-centered pity, this bitterness against the Lord. And in the end, what I want you to notice is that she's deceived. I mean, on one hand, she says, God is good, but he's not been good to me. God Almighty has given me a bad hand, essentially what she's saying. You know, sometimes bitter people actually do blame God for things. Sometimes it's just in what they say that shows that they're blaming God. You might, you might not actually say that God is at fault for this, but by the fact that you're complaining, by the fact that you're murmuring, you're declaring God is not good to me. And your heart is deceived. And what you're deceived to is you're not seeing God's providence in your life and actually what he's trying to do in your life. In fact, notice verse 21. Notice how she's thinking about these things. Notice her deception. Verse 21, she says, I went away full and the Lord has brought me back empty. 
Now, think about that. Here are people who knew that her and her husband left. I mean, do you think maybe some people thought, wow, that's not good for them to do that? They're, you're going where? To Moab? That's, that's actually wrong. That's actually sinful. Like, you shouldn't do that. And instead of here saying that, you know what? I actually sinned. My husband led us this way. I stayed there. In fact, I allowed my sons to marry Moabite women, which I, I think actually was Naomi's decision because her husband had already passed away. Instead of confessing her sin, what does she do? She lays the blame on God. In fact, even think about that statement in verse 21. I went away full, and the Lord has brought me back empty. Now, think about that. I went away full. It was a time of famine. You weren't full. In fact, you left your house. You left your family. You left all that you knew because of the famine. And then, and the Lord has brought me back empty. Now, notice, now, notice that she's saying, I went away full. So when I was full, it was about who? It was about her. She went away full. But then when she was empty, whose fault was it? It was God's fault. I mean, notice the theology of this right here. When things are good, it's due to me. When things are bad, it's due to God. This is the exact opposite of Job's way of thinking where he says, yes, the Lord gives, and yes, the Lord does take away. He does both. He gives, he takes away, and what's the response to that? Blessed be the name of the Lord. That's how Job responded but Naomi here is responding, saying that God has left me empty. And even just think about that. Has God truly left her empty? Think about how deceived her thinking is in regard to that. I mean, who was standing next to her? I mean, who, who had committed their life to her? It was Ruth. Empty. Here's a person who said, not only will I stay with you in Israel, I will go to the grave with you. So she's not even seen the blessings in her life. And I think this is what happens when we're bitter. When we hold on to things, when we hold on to resentment, and we hold on to things of the past, the problem is we don't see the blessings of the present. We don't see the blessings that God's put in our life. And we can be so blind to those, and we're deceived in our thinking. We're deceived in our thinking about God and his providence, what he wants to do in our life. And we're deceived in our thinking in regard to what is happening even around us the blessings that God has given us. In fact, look at verse 22. So Naomi returned and Ruth the Moabite, her daughter-in-law with her, who returned from the country of Moab, and they came to Bethlehem at the beginning of barley harvest. And so there again, we see this light of God's kindness to her. We're, gonna, we're actually gonna go next week and look more at Ruth and look at her response. But I just want us, want us to think through bitterness. I think all of us in here probably should ask ourselves this, these questions. Do you, do I have a heart of bitterness about a situation, about a person, maybe even about God? Maybe you feel like you were unjustly treated in a certain way. Or maybe you can't even stand to think about a certain person or talk to a certain person. And it could be that you were, you were truly wronged in a certain area. But that bitterness is eating you up. It's consumed your heart. It consumes your soul. And you've chosen to hold on to that hurt, which has planted a seed of bitterness in your heart, and it's spiritually killing you. Sometimes we hear things like, you know, 
ask hear questions like, you know, do you have a heart of bitterness? And automatically think, oh no, no, I don't I don't have bitterness in my heart. And we use euphemisms like this. No, I'm not bitter, I'm just I'm just hurt by this. Hurt you've thought about for a long time and you've held on to. What's that called? Bitterness. Or uh, no, I'm I'm just frustrated about the situation. And so therefore I'm talking to people about it and I'm upset and angry about it. Oh, what, okay. Where does that start? It starts with bitterness. So those are just euphemisms for bitterness. What we're doing when we use language like that for bitterness, we're just excusing our own sin. I had a, a lady that came up to me a couple years ago, and uh, um, she was a lady within our church, and I thought we had a good relationship. Um, and she came up, and she wanted to confess something to me and tell me she was sorry for something. So I didn't know that at the time, but she pulled me alongside, and we sat we had a big atrium at the church I was at previously, so there's a lot of people out there, but we were able to privately meet on the side. And she said that years ago, one time in a class that I taught the teens, I said something, and her son came home and told her about that, and so she was mad about that. So years ago, this happened. She had never told me this, and she said, ever since then, I've been upset at you, and I haven't talked to you. I don't you know, I, I haven't wanted to talk to you, and I've, I've, I've kind of held that against you all these years, and I just want you to know that, like, that's why I've been treating you this way for all these years. Oh, I had no clue. Like, I didn't know that. I mean, I talked to this lady before, and she had given us some things sometimes, so I was like, I thought it was, everything was okay, and, and uh, I think the thing that was probably the saddest thing for me is I thought about her son, who had long since then walked away from the Lord. I thought about the bitterness that she had in her heart all those years. I wondered how much did that affect him. She had a view of me. She had a view of our church. She held on to that bitterness for all those years. And I wondered how much of that poisoned his own soul as well. I think the thing we need to recognize about bitterness is that it grows like a weed. It entangles our soul, kills our joy, and hurts people around us. So what is the answer to this? What is the answer? Well, I'm going to tell you, unfortunately, we're not going to go through the entire answer because we're going to do that next week. But I do want to give you a little taste of the answer because it's not kind to leave you like this, not kind to leave myself like this. So what's the answer? I think there's two really responses we should have to this if we identify bitterness in our life. First of all, it's repentance. Remember I said in this text, you see the word repent or return 16 times. I think the author is trying to tell us something. You need to repent. You need to turn. Turn from this way of thinking. Confess your bitterness as sin and turn in faith to the Lord. And second, you need God's work of grace in your life. We need God's work of covenant love in our life. Ruth's response really to God's providence in her life was to respond with covenant love. And so this is what we're going to look at next week. We're going to look at the blessing of responding with covenant love. The Hebrew word for this is found twice in the book of Ruth. It's hesed. If you want to have the real Hebrew guttural sound, hesed. I don't know. It has a C in front of it. Sometimes it's transliterated that way. But the idea is this is God's type of love. This is not this romantic you know, feelings type of love. This is the type of love that is sacrificial, that is faithful, that serves people even if they don't deserve it. And this is the type of love that Ruth had to the Lord 
and for Naomi. And the contrast, I think, is clear in this text. You have Naomi, who responds to God's providence with bitterness, and Ruth, who responds with this covenantal love. So let's do this. Let's end by going to Hebrews chapter 12. We're going to look at two texts. We'll return to two texts. Hebrews chapter 12. Ruth really responded by committing her life to God and to serving Naomi. Ruth's response of covenant love made all the difference in the world. We're going to see in the next couple weeks that Ruth's covenant love testified of her faith, that she was grafted into the family of God. Her covenant love ended up softening the heart of Naomi. Her covenant love invited God's blessing upon her life. Look at Hebrews chapter 12, verse 15. What's the answer to a heart of bitterness? Verse 15 says, See to it that no one fails to obtain the grace of God and that no root of bitterness springs up and causes trouble and by it many become defiled. So what's the answer in verse 15? It's God's grace. If we identify bitterness within our soul, what do we need? We need God's grace. God's grace is the only shovel that can dig out the root of bitterness in your soul. God's work is the only one that can plant within our soul his love, his faithfulness, his goodness. 4 and verse 31. Let's, we'll end with this text of scripture. When we identify bitterness in our life, we need God's grace. That's God's favor. We don't deserve. Ephesians 4.31, again, we see bitterness. Let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you along with all malice. Look at verse 31. What's he saying to do with this stuff? What should you do? You should put it away from you. So what's the answer to bitterness? Put it away from you. What's interesting, if you look there in, in the, the Greek, you can see put away is actually a passive imperative. In other words, it's something that you're to allow God to do to you. In other words, you need God to work in your life. How, how does that happen? It's through repentance. You confess your sin, you repent and turn to the Lord. And so what he's saying here, he's saying you need God's grace. You need to confess your sin. You need God to rescue you. That starts with repentance, and then notice verse 32. Then, therefore, be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another, as God in Christ forgave you. You see those two words in verse 32, forgive, forgiving, forgave. Those actually share the same root word as grace. So it's the idea that God has graced you, he's forgiven you, and you should extend that same forgiveness to other people. There are painful things in our life, aren't there? I think that what Naomi and what we see Ruth here doing, crying, it's okay to do that. Our favorite verse is what? Jesus wept, right? Jesus cried. It's okay to do that. There's painful things in life. But when, when painful things come, when people hurt us, we're not to hold on to that. We're not to seethe over it. We're not to meditate on how I've been wronged, how I deserve something else. We're to repent of that bitterness in our heart. And the answer to bitterness is to repent and receive God's grace and then to therefore extend his covenant love.
I guess I wonder if maybe during this time you identified in your own heart maybe a root of bitterness, maybe just a person that came to your mind, maybe an event that came to your mind. Let me encourage you when we go to a time of prayer to confess that to the Lord. Ask God, God, give me the grace to root that out and then to go beyond that and actually extend God's grace to those people. Let's pray. As you have your heads bowed there before the Lord, let me invite you just to respond to the Lord in prayer. The Lord is working your heart, Christian. We're to go with confidence to his throne. We're to receive mercy and grace in time of need. He promises that to us. Jessica, could you just play on the piano for us as we just talk to the Lord in our hearts and she'll play softly. We encourage you to come to Christ in prayer, confess your sin, seek his grace. Father, I'm so thankful that you have not dealt with us as your covenant children according to our sins. I'm so thankful that you have given us the exact opposite of what we deserve. I'm so thankful for grace. Lord, how wrong, how sinful, how terrible it is that we don't extend that same grace to other people. Christ has died for us. He's given us the gift of forgiveness. Why would we withhold that from others? Why would we hold on to things of the past? Lord, why would we blame you for anything in our life? Why would we have bitterness to a holy God? Oh Lord, how sinful our hearts can be. And so Lord, that's why we come to you find mercy and grace in time of need. Lord, uproot the bitterness that's found in our hearts and replant within our hearts your love, your mercy, and your forgiveness, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen.